Hey everyone, it's Oliver. Just wanted to let you all know we had some audio issues for the first 20 or so minutes of the episode. They resolve around that mark. We're casuals. We don't know what we're doing. We suck. Wall. Welcome to Zone Coverage. It's me again, Oliver Fox, joined by Sam. He's back, better than ever. I'm back, everybody. It's a beautiful fall day, and I'm ready to talk about some football and basketball. It's kind of chilly, honestly. It is kind of chilly, but you know, we're in the cozy studio, and yeah. we're ready to talk. It's pretty warm in here. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's run it. All right. NFL. That's a thing that still exists. We're that through seven weeks of the season. We're recording this on Friday, October 28th. So we haven't yet seen anything that happened on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Just watched the Ravens beat the Bucks in what I'm going to call the Divorce Bowl, um, yep. where it was Tom Brady's last game being married to Giselle. Um, so. In all seriousness, I do wish both of them yeah. the best in that situation. More complicated than probably most in the joke media would like to make it seem. Yep. Um, we're not going to discuss marriage dynamics here on this podcast. Uh, we're going to discuss some... All blank teams. We're going to elect some teams after seven weeks. All pro teams, all NBA first teams. Forget everything you knew about them. We got your all disappointment first team. Let's hear it. We got your all woke up and chose violence first team. Okay. And we got your all he's already dead first team. So. I'd love to hear it. What does that even mean? We're about to find out. Okay, go for it. The all disappointment first team kicking off as our starting point guard on the all disappointment first team is the entire vibe of the Denver Broncos. I've decided the Denver Broncos are so vibe bankrupt that I'm worried their season... You might have to just write them off at this point. I. Uh, it's so sad. It is it's sad. It's really sad because I went in... I was totally on the hype train going into the season. Like, in fantasy, I was, like, all in on Russell Wilson, Jerry Judy, Sutton. I thought their whole offense... I thought they were just going to plug, plug in Russ and it was going to turn into DK Metcalf and... Uh, Tyler Lockett 2.0, maybe even better. They had a good run attack, and then Williams got hurt, and it's just it's just a mess. And it's they are sad. on the most depressing four game losing streak I've ever seen. Yeah, they their last win was week three against San Francisco, in which they won eleven to ten, which is just pathetic. The they, offense just looks dead. It, it does, and the they lost Javante Williams. The, their last four losses have been thirty two twenty three to Vegas which they got destroyed in that game. That game was not as close as the final score makes it seem. They lost 12-9 to Indianapolis in maybe the saddest primetime game I've ever seen. That was a Thursday nighter. Uh, there was like seven total field goals in that game. Um, inexplicable decision-making, horrible reads by Russ, horrible interceptions down the stretch. Uh, they lost to L.A. 19-16, and they lost to New York 16-9, the Jets. Now, what we're seeing out of the Broncos so far is that they just simply cannot score points. And that was supposed to be their whole shtick, was offensive production with Russell Wilson. Mm -hmm. Talented skill players, Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy, Javante Williams was going to be a revelation. Not a bad offensive line, yet they just can't score, which was supposed to be the idea. The Broncos had a good defense last year, but their quarterback situation was so disastrous that they couldn't score points. They're averaging less points this year than they did last year by a significant margin. So what is Russell Wilson doing? What is going on here? Why are they the starting point guard of the all-disappointed first team? It's it's very discouraging. And I'm just looking at Russell Wilson's stats right now. He has only thrown more than one touchdown once this season against the, the Raiders, those two touchdowns. He hasn't thrown more than 350 yards in a game. And he's overall just been extremely inefficient. I think, well, we're seeing now that he's also been kind of hurt, but I still don't think that's an excuse. I think that he just hasn't tapped into the playbook enough yet. Um, it It's very disappointing because I thought this was the kind of offense where it kind of resembled what he, he was doing in Seattle, but honestly better, more talented. So it's maybe there's hope down the line, but... Nah. I, I think you're a little more pessimistic than I am, but for now, I'm writing them off too. Well, so here's um, here's your problem. Here's my problem. They're two and five right now. They're playing Jacksonville in London this weekend, which I will get to later. <laughs> they have to play the Chiefs twice. And you're not getting into the playoffs in the AFC with seven losses. And I don't think they can beat the Chiefs. Oh, I don't think that we think yeah. they're getting into the playoffs. I, I think that's over. So 
what I've what I've seen out of the the Broncos is a team that's identity is in all the wrong places. The the Nathaniel Hackett situation is what's interesting to me is that they probably brought in Hackett to lure Aaron Rodgers because he was Aaron Rodgers' offensive coordinator. Right. Rodgers had this quote where he said, "I don't want to go anywhere if Hackett's not coming with me." So that the old ownership hired Hackett, then they sold the team. Rodgers didn't leave, and now they're trying to transition the whole idea to Russell Wilson. It's just a totally different concept. Hackett is not a good game manager. He doesn't have any idea what he's doing in the little nitty-gritty parts of it. Maybe he's a fine play caller, but his play calling hasn't been good either. So it it's just a it's a disaster all the way around. They're the captain of the all-disappointment first team. But speaking of Aaron Rodgers and Nathaniel Hackett's old team, yep. the uh, shooting guard and also small forward, <laughs> there's only four people on this team, um, is the Green Bay Packers. Green Bay Packers, What's going on with them? I don't know what's happening. They Their season could end Sunday night. Um, they are so decrepit offensively. They can't move the ball with the twice-in-a-row reigning MVP. Um, I really don't want to hear the, oh, his receivers aren't good argument. He's missing throws. He's not hitting the windows he used to. He doesn't have that back shoulder that he used to have. They can't establish the run on the ground, which is really strange because they have a, maybe the best one-two punch in football with Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon. A.J. Dillon's just not even well, Yeah, wait, I was just going to comment on that. I thought A.J. Dillon was going to be much more involved in this offense than he is. I, I think mean, a lot of people thought he was going to take he's over. He's getting carries. Like, he's had double-digit carries in multiple games, but I thought he was going to, like, take Aaron Jones' job by the end of the season, yeah. honestly, and become, like, a true workhorse. But he's kind of been especially fantasy purposes because he's been on my team. He's kind of been a non-factor in the offense. And you get the occasional, like, explosion from Aaron Jones. Like, he get, got, like, two receiving touchdowns last weekend or something like that. But it, That was super annoying. I was playing against him. It just looks like Aaron Rodgers, It's he just doesn't trust his receivers. Aaron Jones is the only person on the offense he trusts. Yeah. And it's getting in his head. He, he doesn't have the same swagger that he had before. Mm-hmm. And he really misses Devontae, you can see. Um, he misses the... He doesn't have Randall Cobb anymore. He went down as well. So all the guys that he used to rely on are gone. Um, I also think the Packers' defense on paper is so talented. They have seven first-round picks. It's not like they're old or anything. They're they're all these blue-chip guys. It just hasn't been good. Schematically, they've been all off. Yeah. They they haven't been able to tap into the, the kinds of defense they really should be going for. The week one loss to the Vikings was a disaster defensively. Justin Jefferson was so open so many times. It was this inexplicable packages where they kept leaving big dudes on the field to stop the run and then Justin Jefferson kept getting lined up against linebackers which is just not gonna work and you've seen this happen over and over and over again with the Packers and I think they might be in real trouble against the Bills on Sunday night we might see a statement game from the Bills against the Packers that takes their season and throws it in the they throws it in the garbage destroy can destroy them I think they probably are gonna destroy we're them. gonna get to that soon yep but our power forward on the all disappointment first team, maybe not the most impactful player. He'll get some rebounds. He's gonna he's gonna throw his weight around there in the what, paint. What dictates how you set up these positions? Uh, nothing at all. But we're just it, kind of beautiful. With it. I yeah. love it. Keep going. So this 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 uh, this member of the team, yeah, they're gonna throw their weight around. Maybe not gonna score that many points for the for the team. I think the Broncos are carrying most of the offensive load, but the entire NFC South is the power forward yeah, on this seriously. team. Seriously, the NFC South is pathetic. It was supposed to be, or at least was for a while, that division that everyone's like, oh, there's a lot of good teams in this division. Oh, they, the Bucks are the Bucks are gonna make a splash. You got the, the Falcons with their new coach. You got the the Panthers. I know there was plenty of people in the in in the media who thought the Panthers could really uh maybe do something with their roster and maybe Baker Mayfield wasn't that bad. He's that bad. Um and then the Saints, like, oh, they have good coaching and a good infrastructure and yada yada yada. There is I hesitate to say this. There's 0.5 good quarterbacks in this division right now. It's Tom Brady, who has looked absolutely (laughs) lost out there. I'm not saying he's looked bad, but he, he, well, last night he actually did look bad. So maybe I will say that. He's kind of bad. They just, their offense is so loaded with talent and they can't. The run game is so bad and it's Leonard Fournette. (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're loaded with receiver talent. There's no reason why Mike Evans shouldn't be catching more passes. They've been riddled with drops. Godwin's been injured. Julio Jones has just played his second game of the season last night, and it's just a... He looked... Julio Jones looks like he's limping out there. It's he, bad. It's well, awful. It's bad when it looks like Russell Gage is, like, the best receiver he, out And he there wasn't sometimes. even active last night, which is yeah. 
just not good. The Panthers are somehow only one game back in this division, uh-huh. um, which is hilarious. If the Panthers win this game against the Falcons, I'm fairly certain they're going to be in first in the division, which is disgusting considering P.J. Walker is their quarterback and they just traded Christian McCaffrey. The, the most exciting player in this division was Chris McCaffrey. He's not even around anymore. No Kamara might be on the trade block. The yeah. Falcons refuse to use their good players, and they're still somehow winning games. Um, Kyle Pitts doesn't get any targets. Drake London looks like they spent the was the ninth overall pick on someone they're just not going to touch. And I'm going to wholeheartedly admit it. At the, I was my sleeper pick of this season, going into the season, it sounds like, I sound like an idiot now, was the Panthers. Oh, my gosh. And I now am being ridiculed by all my friends for picking them. I was like, guys, don't sleep on the Panthers. Baker Mayfield's better than you think. They got CMC. That has just aged horribly. I do think the one thing I will say about the Panthers is that I think their defense, they got Burns. I I think as long as they have Burns kind of as the centerpiece and they like Gilmore kind of hangs around, they have, like, some semblance of a core on defense that they can work with in the coming years. Yeah, they turned down um, two first-round picks for Burns, allegedly. There was a report about yeah, that. I think their defense is in much better positions than their offense is right now. I mean, once you trade McCaffrey, arguably the best running back in football, then that that obviously has an impact. Uh, so we'll see. I am not completely writing off the defense, but just the offense and the overall playbook is not going to lend to them having any success in the yeah. future. So we did a segment uh, last week about the potential Super Bowl contenders who are looking problematic. And the last member of the team, the center, the big man in the middle, is the entire NFC's Super Bowl hopes. There appears to be three legitimate teams in the league that can actually win the Super Bowl. we got the Bills, who I'd say are the odds-on favorites, the Chiefs, who just took the 49ers and slapped them across the face, and the Eagles, who are 6-0, just added uh, Robert Quinn, Pro Bowl and All-Pro edge rusher. Um, now, what about the Giants? The Giants are not going to win the Super Bowl. I'm sorry. <laughs> they're, they're, this is cute, but eventually math is going to catch up with them. Yeah. But I heard a great take on, um, I'm forgetting the podcast, forgive me if you uh, were the one who said it, that the entire sanctity of the Super Bowl rests on Jalen Hurts' ankle. In that, if Jalen Hurts gets hurt, the Super Bowl is going to be the Bills beating whoever the heck comes out of the NFC by, like, 100. And it's it's not going to be particularly fair. Um, the Eagles are the only team that looks like they have any ability to compete here. Um, they the, the rest of the NFC, like, tell me, Sam, I have a game for you. Yeah. Tell me the second best team in the NFC. Second best team in the NFC? I, I mean, I... I want to say eventually it can be the 49ers. It can be. I'm not saying it will be. I'm saying if CMC can get acquainted with this offense, they have, like, some, on paper, the most talent in the NFL, and they can do something with it. You could argue the Vikings. The Vikings, I mean, record-wise, are doing really well, and they have Jefferson doing the gritty on everybody. Uh, And it should be the Rams, but it's not. So I don't really have an answer for you. Exactly. So... Right now, at this state and season, and obviously still a lot of time, still before Thanksgiving, but really unsure who's going to make it out of the NFC. That's why they're the big man on this team. They're a, a huge number of teams with a huge amount of ineptitude. All right. I like it. Next team we're going to talk about is the all-woke-up-and-chose-violence first team. We're just talking about the Eagles. <laughs> the Eagles are the star of this team. They, in the offseason, made some moves. They traded for A.J. Brown, but I feel like every year in the offseason in the NFL, there's one team that trades for a superstar, and you're like, huh, I didn't know you were in win-now mode. And then suddenly they're in win-now mode, and, and they knew something I didn't. I think it was the 49ers a couple years ago. The 49ers went like 3-13 and 13 one year, and then I, got a, I, I heard an interview with Kyle Shanahan that just said, it's Super Bowl or bust this year for us. And I was like, you went 3-13 and 13 last year. What are you yeah. talking about? What is that? And then they make it a Super Bowl, almost win. They blow a lead to the Chiefs. They very well could have won. I think the Eagles are that this year. I think the Eagles saw what they had in Jalen Hurts. They saw what they had defensively. They went and got Jalen Hurts a guy in A.J. Brown. And they're, they're going for it. Devonta Smith has looked good. The running game is amazing because of Jalen Hurts' abilities. O-line is top five, maybe top three in the league. And their defense is suffocating. They have Darius Slay locking people down. 
James Bradbury on the other side, who's the best second corner in the league. I don't want to hear any other arguments. <laughs> and they just, they, they're a team that last season, I didn't think of them as this contender. They made like three moves, woke up, and chose violence on the entire NFC. It's just the most balance I think there is on a team in the NFL right now with the, with the, what you mentioned on the defense and the offense. And that pickup of A.J. Brown, it's just made the entire offense more efficient. Like, I would last season, I was not sure if Devonta Smith was going to be anything special. He had a lot of talent coming out of college, but he's looked a lot better this year, and I think that's partly because the targets are more spread out with A.J. Brown. Dallas Goddard, you could argue, is a top six tight end. He's very athletic. Uh, in the NFL, underrated there. Miles Sanders, of course, Gainwell. They, they, and they also have got a good amount of depth, too. Uh, so I really, a lot of guys who can the hurt Eagles, you in space. The Eagles are going to be out for, out for blood. Yes. So the next woke up and chose violence team slash member of the team is the Kansas City Chiefs. Mm. This is not a very difficult one, and it's kind of hard to say they woke up and chose violence because it's hard to say the Chiefs were dead after making it to the AFC Championship last year. Um, they're a perennial contender. Mm. The Chiefs were sort of shunned in the offseason in that they're the only team in the AFC West that appeared to get worse on paper. They lost Tyreek Hill, who's a top three, top, maybe top two receiver in the league. Um, and everyone was like, oh, the Chiefs are offensively. It's going to be hard without Tyreek Hill. Their whole offense is based upon taking the top off and then that threat opens all these other stuff intermediate, intermittently. But the Chiefs don't care. Um, they took the 49ers, who just traded for Christian McCaffrey, and it was this big, exciting thing. And made them look stupid. Juju Smith-Schuster was going crazy. MVS was running all over them. Michael Hardman had three touchdowns. What the heck is that? Mahomes looks better than he's ever been. Um, he He's just as good, if not better, as last year. Mm-hmm. I think their supporting cast is not as much of a detriment as you think they is. And I heard actual people, people with platforms, not just not just my friends who don't follow football, say that they thought the Chiefs were going to finish in last which is in the AFC West, ludicrous right which now. is nuts. And I, I had, um, I, I'm pulling out the receipts. Max, who we had on the pod uh, on Thursday, Max uh, he picked the Broncos to win the Super Bowl. And Whoa. that is looking <laughs> oh, kind of disastrous. Uh, he thought the Chiefs were going to finish behind the Broncos oh. in the AFC West. Max, oh. sorry to put you on blast. But this is the kind of disrespect that the Chiefs were getting over the offseason. And... We have one friend who's a Chiefs fan. He was saying they were criminally underrated, and I agreed. They're an underrated team coming into the season. The one thing I'm going to say, too, and this is kind of an I told you so moment, I feel like for me, so I'm going to bask in the glory. I honestly felt like everyone was upset about Tyreek Hill leaving, and of course, he's a top three receiver in the NFL. You can't make up for that loss. But I think it has made, in some ways, the Chiefs that much more dangerous because Patrick Mahomes is so much him, and he can really work with anything he's got they have Patrick Mahomes Patrick Mahomes they have so much more depth at receiver than they have had in previous years and any guy on a given week can explode like Hill would in every game you got Michael Hardman three touchdowns last week Juju's been on a tear in recent games MVS they just got Kadarius Tony. They, That's an interesting let's see trade. If they could do anything with him because if I he can actually get on the field. He can be good. I think talent wise, he's super underrated. And now that he has Patrick Mahomes as his quarterback, once he gets healthy, that's another like pretty legit wide receiver too that they got. We're gonna need to see if he can actually play though, because that was always the book on Tony. He's so talented, so electric with the ball in his hands. You can't just get on the field. You just don't know where they're going, and that and because Mahomes is that lethal, I think that's just terrifying for the rest of the league. And of course, Kelsey's just been amazing as always. As per usual. Um, so Chiefs, they they're making everyone pay for saying I thought they were going to be in second to last. So yes. I'm also nice bad good work. right now. <laughs> so last member of all wake up and chose violence first team is Geno Smith. Geno Smith this year has been so much better than everybody thought he would be. They wrote him off. He didn't write back, and I, I'm just impressed. I don't. I don't have profound analysis on Geno Smith. I don't know the mechanics of what he's doing. He's looked very solid. He's got poise in the pocket. He's stepping up. He's throwing these back shoulder things. He's got an actual offensive 
identity going. He's scrambling. He's getting loose, breaking sacks. He knows where his guys are. He knows where his O-line is. He's not doing what Russ did for years, where he's running around like crazy behind his O-line, and that means his O-line can't block for him. So it, there's a interesting analysis of sacks and saying that they might be a quarterback stat. If quarterbacks are just going all over the place, what does that even mean? Well, I think Geno is a great fit for the system. He's played great. Um, he was written off. He's been on a ton of teams, been a backup for a bunch of years. Um, he's been a quality, quality starter this year on a team that could very well win the NFC West, which, which is, is crazy, crazy to think about. Only winning record in the NFC West. So yeah. we'll see. They can um, pick up another win this week. Geno Smith, I, I feel like we have a little bit of a Freaky Friday uh, phenomenon going on yes. here. I think Russell Wilson and Geno Smith have switched talents, switched bodies, and Geno Smith is looked like the best version of himself. It's a really great story. That moment at like the first game where he was like, I didn't write back though. I was like, Oh, this guy is about to swag bring the Seahawks to the top of the NFC West. And I think it honestly just says more about Russell Wilson than it does Gino in a way, because he stepped, he Gino has fit right into the role that Russell Wilson was before. And he's honestly been playing better than Russ was even at the end of last season. Uh, with the Seahawks team. So it's it's very intriguing. I can't wait to see what the Seahawks do. Awesome. All right, so we are going to quickly move into our last team, which is the all-he's-already-dead first team. Oh, God. Which is, I'm, I'm going to give you three games that are being played this weekend, and I want you to give me your gut reaction in one word to these games. Ready? Packers-Bills. Packers-Bills. One word. Blood. Okay. <laughs> Denver, Jacksonville. Trash. Washington, Indianapolis. Mid. Okay. So we got blood, <laughs> trash, and mid. In in the Blood Bowl, which is Packers, Bills, I think this game could be terrifying. It could be horrifying. It could be the Bills taking the reigning MVP, make him look stupid. They could take the Packers defense and all its talent and rip it to shreds. This could be Josh Allen's coronation as the best quarterback in football and could be Aaron Rodgers's farewell tour in prime time on Sunday night. This game might be ugly, and I mean actually ugly for Aaron Rodgers. Mm-hmm. He's going to get sacked a lot. He's going to get sacked a lot, and Josh Allen's not going to get sacked a lot because he just he can't sack the guy. Mm-hmm. So, Denver-Jacksonville in the trash bowl. <laughs> I this this <laughs> this is like the ultimate loser leaves town um matchup. Whoever loses this game, forget it. Your your season, I don't care. You're you're yeah, done. This is this is a ending crushing blow to one of Jacksonville, I feel like was a Super Bowl contender for 2 weeks and then they just fell off a cliff. Um they looked really good. They had a couple really impressive wins. But then in the last couple weeks Trevor Lawrence has looked lost. Their yeah. offense can't move the ball. They just traded James Robinson. ETN's looked good. Their defense can't stop anybody. They, they're they riddled with injuries in the secondary. It, you, you just can't win with this formula. I need to see it from Trevor Lawrence. I think they, they're like about two years away from doing anything actually significant for the duration of the season. I, I just think about Trevor Lawrence. Is he? There's no way you're out here and you're this discombobulated. He's too talented, though. Yeah. I, I just think it's a mental game for him. And he just needs to settle in a little more to this offense. Maybe ETN finally taking yeah. over as the lead back and solidifying himself in that role. That will give some continuity for this team. I'm willing to give him another half a year just because of the Urban Meyer malarkey last year. I don't know how yeah. big of a deal that was. It's really hard to, to gauge how difficult that was for a quarterback in a development stage. We'll see. And then the last is the... What was the word? The mid. Mid. The mid bowl. Washington versus Indianapolis. These teams are both... This isn't a one of them's going to be dead after this game. These teams are both already dead. I th- There's no shot these teams do anything. Indianapolis technically has a has a 500 record. They're 3-3-1. Three, three, um, Washington does uh, not have a 500 record. They're 3-4. and four. Um, Both those teams have records where they could technically pull something out. I have negative confidence in Taylor Heineke. He is a backup. Sam Ellinger. Sam Ellinger's not... <laughs> Like, I saw a comp on Twitter of Sam Ellinger saying, like, you want to know who Sam Ellinger is? It's like if he was Jalen Hurts, but he's really bad. And I haven't seen Sam Ellinger play since Texas. He was good at Texas. I, I, I like the guy at Texas. He, he's mobile, really athletic, great arm. Um, his decision-making was always a little 
his knock. Uh, did not a good pocket presence. Uh-huh. We'll see how he does against NFL rushers. Um, and we'll really see how he does against DeForest Buckner coming in his face. Or not DeForest Buckner, what am I saying? Um, against the the um, Deron Payne and Montez Sweat, who's a legit yes. edge rusher. Yeah. Um, so I think this is not a good start for Sam Ellinger. Um and then the Matt Ryan situation is a disaster. These teams are both already dead. Just forget about it. Forget yeah, it. yeah, we're just going to move on. Washington fans, they're, they're gone. There's next year. Indy fans, I'm, I'm sorry about your quarterback situation the last couple of years. You've had so many quarterbacks. Andrew Luck retiring really just ruined your entire franchise's <laughs> really history. All right, well, that is it for our, for our all-disappointment first team, our all-woke-up-and-chose-violence first team, and our all-he's-already-dead first team. We're going to take a quick break and come back with some NBA See you then. Yep. Welcome back, everybody, to Zone Coverage. It's time for the NBA segment. And this week, we're talking about post-week one storylines. We're going to start it off right away with some early rookie of the year picks. I feel like right now there are... We're doing this already. We're doing this already. Rookies of the year. Played like four games. I honestly think this is one of the most intriguing rookie classes I've seen in recent memory mainly because there there's two guys that I really think are at the front of the race right now we have Paulo Bancaro who of course was the number one pick he what is a lord what are the absolute beast 24 points per game 7.6 rebounds 3.2 assists that those are crazy numbers that to be fair the team is 0 five so I don't know how much we're factoring in team success with rookies of the year because they're rookies. They're just getting their getting their feet wet. But it's now been a week, and he's averaging twenty four points a game. That that's pretty lethal. That's pretty lethal, Oliver. Yeah, I I was super impressed by Bancaro uh, in the first game of the season. He looked like just an absolute animal out there. He's he's so. Enormous is the one thing that I always forget about Paolo is when he was coming into the draft, he was standing next to uh, Jabari Smith and Chet. Chet is obviously uh, over seven feet. He's massive. Um, And then you see Jabari Smith, who is 6'10". Paolo is 6'10", 6'11", range, but he's also the most buff guy you've ever seen. He's he's like if you added two inches to LeBron, but he kept his physique. And I'm not saying he has the same skill set or the same explosiveness as LeBron, but Paolo is this freakish guy who I feel like was just kind of underestimated coming into the draft in terms of his physical profile because Duke really never let him cook in the same way that the Magic are going to let him. So him and Franz Wagner, who are these two just 6'10 wings, I'm not saying the Magic are going to be good this year. I I know the Magic aren't going to be good this year. They are 0-5. But they have something cooking in Orlando with Paolo. He is definitely my rookie of the year pick. I don't even care who we discuss next. Paolo's looking awesome. Now the other guy we got to talk about, it's Ben Matherin on the Pacers. 20.8 points, 5 rebounds, 2.4 assists. He's shooting 40, 45% from field goal range and about 40% from three-point. More than he, that, he's 43 from three. Is he 43 yeah, now? He's he's cooking. Oh, man. Okay. Well, this tandem of Tyrese Halberton and Ben Matherin, it's looking like the Pacers have a really good future core on their hands. And Ben Matherin's honestly in this first week been even better than advertised. And he was saying, like, there was some interview with him where he was like... or Sorry, that's my bad. He's 38.7 from three. Yeah, I, my, yeah whatever. That's on me. Whatever. Uh, where he was like, how good is... Someone asked, like, how good is LeBron James to you? And he's like, well, he's got to prove it to me. <sighs> <laughs> he's got a what? like I I'm I'm him I'm the I'm the best guy right now and I need to see it and I'm gonna take him on head to head it was something like that not verbatim but Ben Matherin he just seems to have that that it factor right now he's on a mission as a rookie on the Pacers and hopefully it'll translate to some wins soon it's very early in the season but if you're the Pacers you actually don't want it to tra- translate to some wins if you're the Pacers you're trying to lose as many games as you you possibly can here um, they're in full tank mode. But what I will say about Matherin is against the the Pistons, he had just a majestic game. Played 31 minutes, shot 56% from the field, 63% from deep, which is unreal. 27 points, 7 boards, 2 dimes. Not that, What I'm really liking about Matherin is he's playing big minutes. They're, they're actually letting him ball handle. They're letting him create. And he's not turning the ball over 
a ridiculous amount of times. He has a solid number of turnovers. He's averaging two turnovers a game. But for the amount of ball skills he's having to work with, uh, I think those turnover numbers are actually pretty encouraging. That was one of the things coming out of college people worried about, his um, looseness with the ball. Uh, but he, his, his per 36 stats are really good. Um, he's playing over 20 minutes a game. Durability looks great. He is a monster on the defensive end hit for on the perimeter defensive scene. I don't know if there's a better wing defender coming out of this, this draft than Ben Mathurin. Yeah, He's looking like he's going to be one of the premier two way players uh, in the NBA coming up here. So I think that's the interesting thing about this draft is you have, you didn't have a Zion and you didn't have a Victor Wembanyama. You didn't have a guy who everyone's like, Oh my God, this dude mm-hmm. is just it. But you did have a bunch of really quality pieces that you can put right. in there. There was tons of athleticism in this draft. Tons of guys you look at, you're like, they could really be in the league for 10 years. Just some some real quality athletes, other than um, the real whiff is looking like maybe uh, Johnny Davis, unfortunately. He oh. was electric in the tournament, but whoosh, Johnny Davis yeah, has been tough this year. He couldn't make a shot in um, the preseason, so he's not really on my rookie of the year radar. Um, yep. But there, there's looking like this draft was was full of quality. It sure was, and it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think Jabari Smith could pick up the pace here in a little bit. He's been pretty good to start the season as well. But I think right now it's really a two-man race between Ben Mather and Paulo Bancaro. But I don't want to waste any more time, and I want to devote a lot of time to this uh, in this segment. The Los Angeles Lakers. This is are, just this is free content. Are, oh, the Lakers are just printing content for us. 0-4 oh to start the season. The Lakers are shooting, according to CBS Sports. And this is what they're they're saying. 22.3% from three-point range through their first four games, Woo! which is the single worst four-game shooting stretch any single team has endured in a single season in NBA history, according to ESPN Stats and Info. Another notable stat is LeBron is 0-4 for the first time since his rookie season. That's crisp. And that t- team that he was on ranked 25th in the NBA in three-point percentage and still made them at a 32.7% clip, 10 percentage points higher than the Lakers. It's the, just the Lakers are his, so sad. Historically bad. So, here's my Lakers feelings. The Lakers are are in such a disaster state where coming into the season, I thought they might try to do some deadline shenanigans and try to figure something out with that Westbrook contract with maybe the Jazz or the Kings, some sort of team that's trying to tank and They'll take on the Westbrook contract. He'll never play a game for them, and then they'll get one of the Lakers' picks. But what I will say that what's emerged with the Lakers is a team that might actually be more disastrous than we thought coming in. LeBron looks like he's stat padding, like he's he's going to pass Kareem, and he's he's content to just do that. He took his money. He took his two years. Can't get traded, which is so strange to see from LeBron because LeBron is the ultimate competitor. And he always looked like he wants to win. His body language doesn't look like he's really interested in making this season into a winning outing, which which is kind of sad he, from LeBron. Davis's jump shot still isn't working. Yeah. He's finding new and inventive ways to get injured, such as hanging on the rim after a dunk. Um, <laughs> Westbrook is impossibly bad. He was 0 for 11 in one game. His decision-making is horrible. I'm I'm starting to think Westbrook might be ascending to the level of unplayable. And I think so, too. I don't think the Lakers can, in good conscience, trot him out there and just pretend it's going to work. Because it's not like they can trade him at this point. Nobody's going to really want to take him. I, I, the Jazz sure don't look like they need him anymore <laughs> with how they've been playing lately. Uh, so I think you they might even want to consider just benching him, and that might cause a stir, but they're already just abysmal, and they need to do something. And it really comes to the point of who's to blame for this abysmal start last season also being awful. I mean, you can look at Westbrook's entry in. I, I don't think you should put all the blame on Westbrook. He's getting a little too much of the brunt of all of the criticism, though he has been really not good according to his standards. But Westbrook is definitely someone. Palinka, like, I think pandering... There's such thing as pandering to LeBron too much. This and might I think be the ultimate LeBron pander. LeBron pander. He they really jumped the gun on getting Westbrook in here, and that has showed to be a horrible move. When I think honestly, maybe hindsight's twenty twenty, but they needed shooters. They needed somebody like a Bradley Beals, maybe someone a little. Maybe if they couldn't get him, someone slightly lower like Terry Rozier. They're looking at Rozier. That's what they're saying, but someone who can just really 
put up shots, play good defense um, around LeBron and AD because right now it's just the lanes are clogged. Everybody's trying to drive. They're trying to shoot. Nothing's happening. But Lakers are a mess. Sam, give me a dramatic sound. Just make a dramatic sound. Ooh. Okay, not exactly what I had in mind, but (gasps) there we go. So (laughs) I'm ready to declare the Lakers are, are done. I mean they're done. I, after four games of the season, <laughs> I'm canceling their season. It's it's done. I'm I'm sick of it. I'm sick of having to care about the Los Angeles Lakers when all they are is maybe a fringe play-in team with two good players and maybe the worst three through eleven rotation in basketball. The Lakers are the Dallas Cowboys of the NBA, and we needlessly obsess about them for no reason other than they're the Lakers and they have this name recognition. They're not even a high payroll team anymore no genie bus does not have the pockets that these other owners are bringing to the table and it's starting to show they're a small market team well they're not a small market team they're a big market team yeah with small pockets masquerading as this juggernaut and it just doesn't line up with their vision they've given up on all their young guys look at some of the guys the lakers had that they gave up for anthony davis and for their title run and granted they want a title so i don't want to discount the whole they give up brandon ingram lonzo ball Josh Hart, all these guys, Kuzma, solid players. Solid players. Though they weren't, at the time when they were traded, they were not nearly as good as they are now. And Granted, they have had more years in the league to develop, but I think that also could be said, some, something could be said about the Lakers system that's actually in place. But I honestly, and this might be a hot take right now, but I, I agree with you. I think they should try to trade LeBron and Anthony Davis. Here's the problem. They can't trade LeBron. LeBron's contract says this year they can't trade him. Next year, I'm saying. Oh, just as general. soon as they can try to oh, get value for him. Oh, that seems likely, honestly. I because one, who knows about this Bronny situation? What's going to happen? Like, <laughs> I am so I don't sick of that conversation. What's going to if he's actually going to do that? If he's actually, you saying he is? But they they got a championship. This is still last year. They were incredibly an incredibly old roster. Still very old. Granted, they got some young guys like Lonnie Walker coming in. Last year Still was hysterical how old they were, though. It but was LeBron, so funny. He really is starting to show his age. Maybe not necessarily in certain ways, playing wise, but I think mentality wise, because he really seems like he's focused now on these individual accolades, passing Kareem, continuing to score, continuing to put up stats and get triple doubles. Uh, because I haven't, I so far in the past two seasons, I haven't seen the same drive from him and motivation that you've seen him absolutely lock in in other seasons. Yeah, uh, and also he just hasn't even uh, the time when he really locks in is in the playoffs, and he hasn't even had a chance to get to the playoffs really in the past two years. Lakers so, are a mess. Lakers are a mess. It's time to trade. Time to make a lot of moves. They're probably not going to do anything, uh, knowing them, but we'll see. Moving on, now let's talk about another team in the West who has been a wonderful surprise to start the season. It's the Portland Trailblazers. They've been great. They've been really good. Damian Lillard, I'm telling you, he's kind of an early MVP candidate, you could say, though he did have a – I think he kind of had a stinker in the last game. Uh, But the first few games he was looking really good. Their their supporting cast, Jeremy Grant shooting like – 42% 42% from three or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head. Yusuf Nurkic is looking, putting a double-double machine, playing, honestly, pretty good defense. Uh, they got good supporting guys. Josh Hart, who we mentioned before. Gary Payton's going to come back. They got Shaden Sharp, who's going to continue to ascend in the league. Shaden Sharp's got bounce. He's got bounce, and he could be end up being one of the best players in this draft when it's all said and done. Uh, so Trailblazers are looking surprisingly good considering I didn't think they were even going to make the playoffs. Now I think they are at least going to be a play-in team, probably more. Uh, and I can, I'm can i confident saying that even after one week in the season. I think the, a lot of the doubt about the Blazers coming into the year was predicated on the fact that their best player is a small guard in a league that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You look at the, the teams that succeeded in the playoffs last year. So let's say the, the Bucks had a great season. They took the eventual finals team, the Celtics, the distance. Um, They just ran out of ideas defensively. But Giannis is huge. Chris Middleton is massive. Drew Holiday is 6'4". And then you look who made it to the finals. The Celtics are built on size. They They have these huge wings everywhere. Their two best players are 6'8 plus. 
And then you have Dame, who's a 6'2 point guard. Curry is the only equivalent of a guy like Dame who's really succeeded. But Curry is surrounded with quality players who are big. And they Mm -hmm. can sort of, in their system, defensively, hide Curry. So you can't just pick on him. Um, They did that with Wiggins in the finals, where Wiggins could just sort of out-physical Tatum, um, which is sort of inexplicable now that you look at it. Tatum is a a much better player than Wiggins, but Wiggins just kind of took him out to – took him out to lunch and I, I think Lillard is a is whatever he is offensively and what he is offensively is one of the most talented players in NBA history the problem is defensively he's such a liability that the the questions about about it were where that came from now what we're seeing is around Lillard is a bunch of really quality players and mm-hmm. can that system around Lillard hold up when he is relied upon to initiate almost all of the offense maybe Simons can take a little bit off of that I, I, I want to see more from the Blazers. I'm not ready to coronate them a contender yet. I, I'm not ready to coronate them necessarily a contender, but I think they're at least a back-end playoff team. And I wasn't even giving them that at the beginning of the season. I think I agreed with you. I think Lillard was I, – I didn't know why they decided to retool. I was all on the trade dame and start rebuilding train, but they're kind of doing – both at the same time they're like a mini mini warriors thing where they're ushering in some new young players while also keeping some of their old core together which is very interesting to watch and i think they've shown enough to be a play-in back-end playoff team at least we'll see how it goes throughout the rest of the season lillard has had get me out of here written all over him for like seven years and yet he's never once wanted out one and of the most loyal players in the NBA. It's so strange. I, I feel like there's just got to be like one ramen place in Portland that he just really likes. <laughs> and he's like, dude, I don't want to. Portland. I don't want to go to L.A. They don't have the same ramen in L.A. Or no. it's just uh, it's not the same. Not the same vibes. Portland's a great, great city. Been yeah. there a bunch. Um, okay. But yeah, I Dame's super loyal. We'll see if they can make it work with him, or maybe Dame will retire as one of the better players to never win a title. We'll see. We will see. And now for the last portion of our NBA section today. We got to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks and just just the brilliance of Giannis. They they haven't had Middleton. They've been have they've been without Pat Connaughton. Joe Ingles has been in and out, and Giannis is averaging thirty six points at the time of recording this. Thirteen rebounds, five point three assists, two blocks, in just thirty four minutes of play. Can't stop him. You can't stop him. He went against KD uh, Wednesday night, forty three points, six of twenty five shooting. They're just looking like as long as Giannis is on the floor in some capacity and you can put pretty much anyone else around him, that they're going to keep up with anyone. Yeah. So it's it's ridiculous. I, I'm I'm just wondering if you think it's like that they're you think they're the ones that they're going to go all the way to the finals at least and conquer the East or do you think – I mean, the Celtics obviously can give them a run for their money, but I just am – Giannis is just too good, especially when he has Middleton and Holiday around him, to be stopped. It's going to be a hard sell to 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 try to argue someone can stop the Bucks. I, I think there's going to have to be an injury. There's going to have to be something extrinsic is going to have to slow down Giannis because no one in the league can do it, and – I, I don't know, maybe maybe the solution to Giannis is Victor Wembanyama. Maybe next year we just have to wait for Victor Wembanyama to get to get drafted. And then the entire league just has to agree to like put him on a title team. Like doesn't matter. Like the, the league makes an an exemption. Adam Silver's like, you know what? Um Utah Jazz, we know you just drafted Victor Wembanyama, but we're gonna need to ship him over here and just put him on like the Grizzlies because we need someone to stop Giannis in the finals, and and I was like, ah, oh, that makes that makes some sense. I, he's a freak. I mean, that's his nickname, but he really is a freak of nature, in in a way. He feels like a like a category five hurricane, where it's sort of like your only your only situation. Like you can't really stop it. You can't even really batten down the hatch. You just have to evacuate the area, and that's what it feels like when he drives to the hoop. It's like the paint's just like everyone just get out of the way. Like get this is not a good idea. I I don't think that. It's possible to stop Giannis with some sort of defensive scheming. Um, all you can really do is hope you can slow him down and contain him. Um, Max said on the pod yesterday that during the Easter Conference Finals, the Celtics didn't stop Giannis. They didn't really contain him. We just survived. We survived. We stayed alive for seven exactly. games. And that's how you got to do it. I, I don't think the Bucks are immortal. 
Um, but I still think that as long as Giannis is standing upright and is actually healthy, it's going to be a hard sell. It's going to be a hard sell for sure. And I think that is something that we're going to have to think about throughout the rest of the season. But that's it for the NBA section of the show today, everybody. Or is it? Or is it? Because when we get back, we have some more top fives. We'll get to that in a moment. All right. Top five, Sam. We are ranking our top five gamers in the NBA. <clears throat> not oh, not the Kyler Murray one. kind of gamers. Not the ones who, who play COD on the weekends and you have to... Gordon Hayward. Gordon, yeah, Gordon Hayward's a gamer. Not not David Price on the Red Sox. He's carpal <laughs> tunnel from playing Fortnite and then can't pitch. Um, no, not that kind of gamer. The kind of gamer is a it's a superstar. Or not sorry, non superstar. Non superstar. That's very maybe clear. even non star because I have yeah. some low like you some guys that you'd consider very low on the pecking order. Here. It's it, it's a non superstar who when you just need them to turn up, they're gonna turn up. And it can be in any number of ways. They could turn up by breaking the Guinness World Record for most towel flips in a minute on the bench. They could they could do it by just coming in and strapping a thirty foot three at the end of a shot clock. You don't know. You have but no Sam, idea. let's do this. Let's actually organize this this time. Yeah. Let's go five, four, three, two, two one. one. Give me your fifth best gamer. Fifth best gamer, everybody. Drum roll, please. It is Grant Williams yes. of the Boston Celtics. Why do I say this? Can we point to Game 7 of the Eastern Conference semifinals last season when he put the team – I can't believe I'm even saying this – put the team <laughs> on his back. I and put the team they, on my they back. left him open because they were, they were trying to guard up against Tatum and Brown. They left him open. They disrespected Grant Williams. And when we needed it, he is absolutely lethal from three. He, he is one of the best corner three shooters in the NBA. I think that's pretty comp- – you can say that now with, with fair confidence. Even after starting – at the beginning of his career, he started on a horrible – he missed like the first 23 shots or threes he took. From then – from the here on out, especially in the past two seasons, if you need a three-point shot, if you need a big body who can just like – at least like – build part of the wall to stop guys like Giannis on defense, he steps up for you in those critical moments, and that really showed in last year's playoffs. And that's I like why that. I have him at five. He's, he's a physical gamer. Mm-hmm. He's such a big body, you just throw him at people. He's mm-hmm. like a, like a three-ton truck that you just block the road with. You're like, nope, can't get through here. Too, too much mass in the way. Mm-hmm. All right, well, Sam, my number five gamer is – I'm sort of stretching the definition here of a gamer because this guy is – a legitimate quality player in the league. Go with Gary Trent Jr. on the Toronto Raptors. Interesting. For his okay. entire career, Gary Trent Jr. has been nothing but an absolute electric player. He is not efficient. He is not a good defender. But all he does is get buckets. And I have watched so many Raptors games and so many games when Gary Trent was on... How many teams has he been on at this point? Several. Um, Gary Trent Jr., when he was on Portland, was a bucket. When he was on Toronto, he's a bucket. And I just see him game in and game out. He pulls up for three with so much confidence that I don't know where it comes from. And he, he's – I don't know what else to say about him. He's a shooting gamer. He games. That is very interesting. You know, I honestly feel like I've forgotten about Gary Trent Jr., and I'm glad you put him back into my consciousness. You're welcome. Uh, because I, I respect that take, certainly. Number four for me, I kind of have – I kind of cheat a little bit. I kind of have two guys, but I feel like they're kind of the same sometimes <laughs> in their on their respective team. It's two guys on the same team. Is it four is, and three? No, this is four. I again, I cheated a little bit, oh, so it's two technically guys six. All right, but it's two guys in the same slot because they kind of just do the same thing in the end. It is Duncan Robinson and Max Struess <laughs> of the Miami Heat, and this year that looks bad. This I will admit it. This year that does not translate so far but in the past we saw in 2020 in the bubble Duncan Robinson carry the heat sometimes with his three-point shooting Max Struess the same with last year's playoffs carry the heat with his shooting those are just two guys that can just pull up and make like a string of threes like uh, on transition defense you give it to Duncan Robinson you give it to Struess pull up they make it and they continue to make shots throughout an entire quarter, and they just somehow get hot out of nowhere. They go on takeover mode. Uh, and I think they are they have been key to the Heat's success in the past. This year, 
We'll see. <laughs> but I they share my four slot of got of top five gamers, guys who can just take over, even though they're kind of irrelevant otherwise. Those guys are hired guns. You, <laughs> you bring them in, you strap a couple threes, and you can go sit back down. But yeah, I'm a very shooting heavy. This list is very three-point shot heavy. <laughs> guys who just catch fire from deep, so just disclaimer there. All right, well, my number four is... Guy who just got a new team, new contract, Jalen Brunson. Jalen Brunson. What about him? Jalen Brunson, sort of on the cusp of what I would consider like star level, but I don't think he's in the superstar tier. So we're gonna leave him in the gamer list. The reason I think he's such a gamer is you're watching him this year. He's making everyone around him better with so much swag. It's suffocating. Mm-hmm. Jalen Brunson came into New York. He's in a New York state of mind. He's making Julius Randle better. He's making everyone around him better. And he's just doing it with a pep in his step that no one on the Knicks had last year. And I kind of like that about Jalen Brunson. He's not the biggest guy. He's got great handles, great foot speed. He's got great shooting. He's he's such a great facilitator. He's really turned himself into a really good player because he he was not not a big name in college, but he he was always this sort of, could he be a good NBA player, a little small, not a great defender? He's a gamer is what he is. He's a scrappy leader and you need those guys on teams that are going to turn them turn their identities around I think with Barrett and with Randall Jalen Brunson was a, was a good piece and I think that that uh that contract was was a little weird over the over the summer they signed him to over a hundred million that's a lot but but it's a uh, <laughs> he's a gamer he, he sure is a gamer he and he was a gamer in last playoffs as well oh yeah and those like two games ultimate where gamer ended the jazz uh Number three, I just completely switched some things around over the course of us recording this segment. Number three, I have – this is a true gamer. I have Bobby Portis of That's the Milwaukee great Bucks. Great call. Mil- Bobby Portis. In the 2021 championship run of the Milwaukee Bucks and throughout last year, he has in some ways been like the heart and soul of the Milwaukee Bucks. He he's was been, so annoying. He's been – he's – Horrible to play against. He is so annoying. He was awful last year against the Celtics to us. But he's the type of guy that brings that energy, that that fire, that competitive edge. He's kind of like, almost like in terms of energy wise, like the Draymond of the Bucks. Uh, but at the same time, he's been a really serviceable player. Who in those key moments in the playoffs, he has turns up in mid range from like from the elbow he just pulls up he swishes it he can drive down give you a quality dunk um he's a guy that just really feels like he embraces the bright lights in the big moment and he feeds off of the crowd he feeds off of the energy as they're chanting his name bobby portis bobby, is that guy bobby bobby i can't believe we're chanting bobby yeah that's it's sacrilege awful. <laughs> yeah that's a great call bobby yeah. portis was electric in the playoffs last year mm-hmm. come in dunk on somebody Get a key block, mean mug on someone, just an absolute beast. Yeah. My next one is a former Bucks guy, my number three gamer. Kind of, it kind of occupies the same role. PJ Tucker. Oh. PJ Tucker is a gamer. He is getting up there in age. He is not the physical specimen he used to be. He used to be kind of a shooter. Now he just kind of shoots one three a game. Not the same player he used to be. He was sort of the peak of his career was on the Rockets when he was basically their their small ball center to try and match up with the Warriors death lineup. I think P.J. Tucker is just tougher than you, and he's tougher than your friends. He's tougher than your mom. He's tougher than your dog. He's a bully. He, he will mess you up night in and night out, and and that's key on a title team. You you could see last year on the Heat, he was just trying to like take his shirt off, put the hatchet in the stump, and he's ready to square up every single night. P.J. Tucker came in, and he knows he's tougher than you. He knows that he's going to make you feel him. And that's important. And I really think that physically, PJ Tucker fits the gamer, the gamer mold. He reminds me of a guy who would like, even though I wasn't alive, play in the '90s when everything was much more physical. Rough that's a great, that's pistons. a great way to, to start your like, take. He's like a, reminds like me a, of a guy who was I was not alive when I was. I was left. not alive for, but I've watched a lot of <laughs> film of <laughs> the, like on the Pistons or something. It reminds me of the like, late '80s, early yeah, '90s Pistons, the bad boy Pistons. They're gonna make you feel them. Um, exactly. No one likes to play against PJ. Number two on my list is. Andrew Wiggins really? of the Golden State Warriors. Wiggy. Andrew Wiggins, this is also a last-minute addition to the list, but <laughs> I, I've just moved everything around. I, I think about last year's NBA Finals. I'm basing this a lot on playoff performance because that's when turning it up 
is the most is the most important. That's when you got a game. Playoffs. That's when you got you need that gamer to just step up and just go on takeover mode. And Andrew Wiggins, there was I think it was game was it game four? Game three, game four. There game was one. four is when he really made Tatum his and child. Again, this is like n- n- these last two guys are like borderline stars, like b- good starters, borderline star players. Uh, Andrew Wiggins, once again, d- dunks on you. <laughs> one of the most insane dunkers in the NBA. He's an athlete. He's an athlete. Real he athlete. can sh- score. He's a very efficient scorer, can pull up from anywhere and get you a bucket. Uh, he stepped up as like the second key scorer for the Warriors in that title run. I thought it was going to be Clay. It was Wiggins. Uh, and he is that guy. He's that role player, that good starter that gets you a bucket, gets you a dunk to hype up the crowd, and it just really knows his role in the Warriors championship team. And I think that's pretty commendable as a gamer. That's pretty great. All right. Number three for me, or number two? Number two. Number two. two. Number two for me. Big homer pick here. Marcus Smart. Marcus yeah, Smart is yeah. the the dictionary definition of a gamer. He walks into the uh, the building. He He's not the biggest guy. He's not the best shooter. He's not the best finisher. But what he will do is make you aware of his presence every single time. He will dive for every loose ball. He will flop for every time he is flicked on. He will... Go into the post as a 6'4 guard and try to hit a little jump hook because that's what he does. He has no fear from three-point range, which maybe to the chagrin of some Celtics fans has gotten us into trouble. But he's a great teammate. He's a great leader. He's the emotional core of the Celtics. He does so many things, and yet he's still not an elite scorer. He's an incredible defender, but he's not an elite scorer. And that doesn't matter because we don't need him to be. The Celtics need Marcus Smart to game night in and night out. And in the playoffs, having a guy like that, that the opposing team just thinks to themselves the night before, oh, why do we have to play this guy? I, I just am sick of him. That's the, that's my – he's an emotional gamer. That's a commendable. I Honestly, he was should have been on my list. I don't know why he wasn't. but this, Point Oliver. This uh, Point Oliver. Uh, this next guy, I, I was basically – this whole list has been this shooting your number and scoring. One. This is my number one. It's been shooting, scoring, guys who – Take over three point marksmen who transform the offense. Desmond Bain. Oh, yeah. Of the Memphis Grizzlies is my number one player. And even more this year than last year, he just seems like that cog in the machine for this Grizzlies team where he's a great shooter. He's been more involved facilitating this year for the Grizzlies. Um, Ultra efficient and physical guy. Like, have you seen those guns? He is. An absolute specimen. He's like Grant Williams if he was like <laughs> he's way better. A guard and yeah. better. <laughs> and he, he's got a swag in his game that's very exciting to watch and makes that Grizzlies team continues to make that Grizzlies team relevant with John Morant. Uh I think he's ascending. I think he's gonna become actually like a star. Like a he's kind of like in the Fred Van Vliet <laughs> echelon right now, I think, but he's continuing to to climb the ranks. And he is taking over as a major facilitator, even bigger contributor to this Grizzlies team who has aspirations to go deep in the playoffs this year. And I think Desmond Baines is the biggest reason for that. Yeah, I mean, the the sad thing about Desmond Bain was the Celtics actually drafted him and then traded him to the Grizzlies. He may have, I, I forget, I will admit, I forget. I know that pick was the Celtics, the 30th pick. He was drafted 30th in 2020. Um I forget if that pick was the Celtics and then we drafted Bane and then traded him, or we traded the pick and then the Grizzlies drafted Bane. Either way, we, we could have had him. Could have had Desmond Bane. Would have been an elite piece. Um, and I'm also kind of mad at you, Sam, because mm-hmm. I, I can't prove it to the listeners, but Desmond Bane was number one on my list, too. And I kind of like that. I kind of hate that. I had a whole thing about Desmond Bane I wanted to go into, but oh? I kind of feel stupid because. You you grabbed him before me, which I feel like is sort of just luck of the draw. I could have totally snaked you had I gone first instead of you. But I think that just goes to show how much of a beast he is. He has legitimately gotten better mm-hmm. three straight years. Yes. He's gotten he's improved so much and he scored thirty eight points alongside Jaw. Jaw was not able to to really have this Jaw had a bit of a, he sort of tweaked something. He's not injured, but he was sort of messing up down the stretch. 
And he just, Desmond Bain pulled up and just started taking over. He, if you have the ability to score 38 points in a game, you are a legit guy in the league. It was against Brooklyn. And Brooklyn, uh, they're kind of a mess right now, but you need actual scoring to beat them. Put up 38. He he shot 72% from three. He was cashing threes all over the place. He had 31 against Sacramento and on last 75% night. three point shooting. Yeah. Is he going to set the NBA record for the best three point shooting? Probably not. But probably not. It, but. Bain is a legit gamer. He fits every definition we have for him. He he shows up when you need him. He's on a really fun team. They really believe in themselves. I love the Grizzlies. I love Desmond. They're great. Bain. I Rooting love for Desmond him. Bain. And that is all for our weekly top five gamers this week, everybody. Woo. Moving on to the next segment after this. All right, we are going to do a quick, quick pass on the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. So, this week's bigger picture is about affirmative action mm. in college sports. Um, as those of you who do not know, I write a column every week called Sports and Society. Last week's was about affirmative action in how they relate to, quote, country club sports. Mm. Um, the book on affirmative action in college athletics is, is pretty complicated because Certain schools can guarantee admission um, for Division One athletic recruits, such as, um, let's say, D1 football. If you're recruited to Alabama for D1 football, uh, that's the most obvious example, you are guaranteed admission. Uh, mm-hmm. The application is a formality. Lots of places do that. Um, but where this gets really messy and where I, what I talked about in my column is in Ivy League admissions and elite admissions. Um, so let's take Harvard as a case study. Mm-hmm. Harvard University... Um, has a huge number of recruited athletes. Mm-hmm. And um, it sustains 42 varsity sports and has a large number of what we'd call country club sports, which are high personal cost sports, sports that are usually populated by white affluent um, people from suburbs with uh, disposable income and disposable time to sustain what these sports usually require, which is a large time commitment, large transportation commitment, um, gear costs, uh, cost of admission, and just things that aren't usually available to people of a lower socioeconomic status, um, which leads to a high race disparity in these sports. So some of them would be crew, golf, um, sailing, fencing, uh, these kinds of sports that we usually think of as um, quote-unquote elite sports. And now there's mm-hmm. lots being done within these sports to make them more diverse. I don't want to um, – I'm not trying to – um, offend everyone who's involved with these sports. I'm not saying it's their fault, um, but the system of college admissions is rigged to advantage um, these these students, students in high school with a background in these sports. For example, let's say you're a uh, fencing recruit to Harvard University. Harvard does not give out athletic scholarships, which means it cannot um, guarantee you admission, but you are 5,000 times more likely to get into Harvard if you are a recruited athlete mm-hmm. versus if you're a legacy, for example, you're eight times more likely. So, mm-hmm. There's a back entrance to Ivy League schools that in the form of these country club sports that is in many ways acting as affirmative action for rich white, uh, predominantly white um, children. Wow. And what, I, I, what I'm seeing here is that the Supreme Court is sort of poised to destroy affirmative action as a legal concept. And it's not, mm. it's not signed, sealed, and delivered, as I maybe made it seem in my column. Uh, but on October 31st, which is in three days, the Supreme Court is going to rule on affirmative action policies worldwide. Uh, it's a very conservative court. It's very possible that they might um, declare race-based admissions illegal. However, there is a real possibility that these sports advantages will survive because they're not explicitly about race. So while they might be attacked under these new anti-affirmative action uh, rulings, it's going to be much harder to get rid of them, which is so classic of... Uh, conservative Supreme Court rulings is that they they somehow managed to sustain the actual racist institutions advantaging uh, rich white children and families and perpetuating inequality that plagues uh, these universities. And I, I, right. I'll full disclosure, I am pro affirmative action um, in most settings. Um, I think that it it is it's a messy system, but you need diversity on college campuses um, since it was introduced in the 70s. Diversity has gone way up on college campuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Supreme Court, which is looking, I guess, to torpedo the era of college diversity, um, might mm-hmm. accidentally destroy this back entrance um, for the people trying to destroy college diversity. But knowing what I know about politics, I would wager 
that back entrance is probably going to survive. And I think that's a bunch of BS. Just elaborate to me a little more. I, I, I don't actually know much about this whole situation with how it's affecting um, these, these, this back entrance. I just wanted you to clarify to me exactly how this back entrance is going to be destroyed by the Supreme Court. I feel like I missed that point. So if the Supreme Court rules on October 31st that race-based admissions to colleges and universities mm-hmm. in America is unconstitutional under the Equal Protections Clause of the 14th Amendment, it is entirely possible that policies of advantaging college athletes um, might be under scrutiny because Mm -hmm. you look at over 70% of these um, participants in what I'm calling country club sports are white. And Mm. that you could then extrapolate to be a form of race-based admissions. So there has been reporting that these kinds of admissions through athletics uh, could be one of the first things to go if affirmative action falls. However, it does also seem like there's there's a credible defense here. In that it, it's athletics, it's trying to create these teams, it's not the university's policy that it's mostly white applicants, and they don't advantage white applicants because they are white. They advantage them because they are these athletes in these sports, which the university could then use to say, this is not affirmative action. This is sports. Mm-hmm. And in in the field, um, we call that sports washing, um, which, yeah. is a, which is a nice word that's basically claims that you can if you make something about sports you can try to exempt it from yeah, political like scrutiny sports as like a like veil uh, against these policies so that that's of. i guess what i'm worried about and i i don't want affirmative action to fall um but i'm not on the supreme court yeah. um and i'm <laughs> i didn't appoint the justices um right it, but it, it it really could fall right and there might be this massive inequality still in that affirmative action for for predominantly white students could survive in the form of these athletic-based uh, advantages. This is why I really like this segment because it, it gets me also thinking about like we're, we're talking about college campuses here. We're college students and it, it just gets me thinking about the dynamics that sports play, not just like all the nitty-gritty stats and everything we're talking about, all the takes, but also the the implications of it in real-world uh, policymaking and ideologies about how we should um, have more diverse campuses and I'm also pro affirmative action um, personally and I just think this is a very interesting story that I want to read more up on uh, and see how what this court is going to ultimately do with this um, yeah it's a it's a cultural institution and I, I think that looking at sports as what it is is mm-hmm. can really illuminate the intellectual intrigue of it and um, that's what I do with my column uh, yeah. plug just yeah. For fun. Uh, <laughs> um Sports and Society is the name of the column. Write it weekly if you're interested in this kind of thing. We're going to try to discuss it yep. occasionally on the pod. Maybe we won't have time for it all the time, but we had time for it this time. Woo. We did have time for it this time. And all right. I feel like that's a great um, end to this week's pod. All I think right. so, too. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Lakers, for endless content. Endless lol. <laughs> uh, endless lol. Um, <laughs> thank you, Taylor Horton Tucker. Uh, of course, THT. Yeah. Um, can't forget about him. Thank you, <laughs> us, for just being totally inept at audio management. Yep. That was a disaster. The first, the NFL segment, um, forgive us. We will see you all next time on the next episode of Zone Cover. Let's go. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Bye-bye.